Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo uh, modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Malcolm Cheyune is a journalist and columnist who writes for American Affairs, Compact Magazine and Unheard. Starting on the more radical fringes of Swedish politics, he now writes famously erudite essays on the rise of populism and the socioeconomic issues underlying this phenomenon, geopolitics, and the US military, as well as developing his Tinkzorg Twitter alter ego. Most recently, Mr. Cheyune has written on the Ukraine crisis, the applicability of the realist school of foreign policy to the US political economy, and European social unrest all very multipolar issues. So, Malcolm, welcome. Thank you, comrade Collingwood. As they say <laughs> in American talk radio, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> well, uh, well, welcome aboard. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Um, I think we've all read your essays and um, been uh, fascinated and had our synapses firing. Uh, most recently on, or, or relatively recently, on US military preparedness, uh, you've written a fair bit about that, and one of the things that you argue is the U.S. is in no fit state militarily to fight a great power conflict at present. I don't think that's a particularly controversial take in general inside of the U.S. military establishment. So my work on the field has mostly been to, um, I would say, communicate like what I hear when I interview people in the United States, like armed forces, but also just sharing what is in the public record in terms of reports from the uh, government accountability uh, office, which is like a congressional watchdog and so on. The interesting thing about America is like, if you watch the show uh, Chernobyl about like the famous, you know, nuclear accident, you there's this sort of subplot of one scientist trying to find out like the truth about this reactor that that malfunctioned she has to go to this library and find some super redacted report where there's only like one or two words that aren't crossed out it's not like that in america at all like if if chernobyl was about the american military you just go to the librarian and say okay i want this report on how many american airframes actually work and she'd give you, and she'd ask you well do you want a report that says like we can't source spare parts or do you want a report that says like the navy doesn't have enough sailors to actually staff its ship or do you want this other report detailing this other ludicrous dysfunction we have and at some point, you kind of wonder, like, why is this stuff not even classified? And and I think the reason is that nobody really wants to dig into this stuff. One of the questions that I might have about that is that very few militaries, especially when they face peer conflict, appear ready for those, that conflict 
once the bullets start flying and the shells start landing and the jets start uh, taking off, there's always a sense that doctrine, as imagined in uh, staff meetings within the Pentagon or other military headquarters, isn't quite up to the task of the war that they're fighting. There's always the sense that the equipment isn't right, the you know the small arms tactics aren't right. The, you know, whenever a country goes into a war against a peer or a near peer, things always go wrong. Things always don't look right, but things get kind of worked out in the end. Um, you know, we saw that in the Second World War with the Soviet Army. We, you know, we've seen it in multiple wars uh, since against uh, near peer opponents. And I wonder whether our sense that the U.S. is uh, unprepared is is just a factor of. The fact that all militaries are to a certain degree unprepared for great power conflict, conflict totalizing as they are, and the Americans are just more open about it. I mean, is there anything unique about American unpreparedness, viz maybe the modern Chinese or the modern Russians or, 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 or the armies of great powers in days gone by? Well, I think that you bring up a pretty good sort of example here in, in the Soviet Union, for example, during World War II, because it highlights the difference between being doctrinally unprepared, which the Soviet Union clearly was, uh, for, for, you know, one of the reasons being that Stalin had purged the officer ranks. So they actually had to get some like famous officers just out of a gulag um, in order to, 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 to lead the defense against invading Germans. Right, like Konstantin uh, Rokosovsky came from... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's this, this parable where Stalin comments on his, like, you know, lacking fingernails because, you know, he's, he just got out of a, a NKVD torture session when they, they told him he had to lead the, Soviet, like, the, the, um, the whatever army he got in assigned to but like the the problem with that comparison is just that the american problems are not really doctrinal i do think the americans and i think the americans themselves can see that they do have severe doctrinal problems but those are as you point out at least in theory pretty fixable but if you have structural problems uh those problems do not necessarily get better in, in a war. In fact, like they tend to get worse. So the structural problems of the United States are number one. You have a volunteer army, which is now in a massive, massive sort of recruitment deficit. And it's very hard to know exactly how bad that deficit is because one of the reasons that the U.S. Congress has such a like a dedicated uh, um, sort of government watchdog in the uh, government accountability office, like these people are bloodhounds in terms of you know hounding the services, hounding various um, parts of the bureaucracy, and trying to get them to actually show the numbers. Uh, the reason that the GAO exists is that like the services always tend to obfuscate a lot of information. Um, but what the services themselves admit in terms of recruitment and retention is catastrophic all on, on, on its own. So, and I also have, you know, sources inside various, you know, uh, um, 
combat formations. The stuff I'm hearing there is we're talking about like in terms of U.S. infantry, which I think like administratively is called like 11 Bs, 11 Bravos. Like you are looking at maybe a 25% like manpower uh, uh, hole in terms of actual combat formations that would, you know, go into a war tomorrow, theoretically. Like, there are huge, huge, um, like, some, some, some divisions are probably using, like, skeleton formations or, like, uh, uh, ghost formations where, like, combat units exist on paper but not really in reality. And in terms of like the navy, which is probably the most important for a conflict with China, um, a couple of years ago, the the navy was only able to reach an eighty five percent staffing level compared to their own sort of minimum safe crew levels to safely operate the ship. We're not talking sort of like. We only have eighty-five percent of the sailors we 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 would like to have. We're talking eighty-five percent of the sailors necessary to actually operate the ship, essentially, which means uh, a sort of structural lack of sleep. It means that there's no real time for training. There aren't really any replacements, and this famously led to like a lot of accidents uh, with the um, USS Fitzgerald and the USS McCain. Like these were pretty severe accidents, basically ships crashing into civilian uh, um, cargo ships, uh, in which like a lot of sailors died actually. And the U.S. can't really solve its recruitment crisis. I don't think it it, it doesn't really have any good conception of how that would work. And I've seen more and more people inside sort of the Beltway saying, oh, well, we can just go back to a draft. Like, if there's a war with China, we'll just reinstitute the draft. And maybe you can do that, but, like, given how polarized the U.S. is, can you really? Like, how important is Taiwan to the, the average American? Like, important enough to die? Maybe, maybe not. So this is not necessarily a problem that's going to be solved like in a wartime scenario, like the lack of people. But also, and this is kind of where a lot of people who who don't really dig into this stuff um, usually get quite surprised, is that like the main problem of the U.S. military in reality is that it's basically structurally undercapitalized. People look at like the headline of, you know, one gazillion trillion dollars, like the most expensive military in the world. Uh, it should be like the toilets should be gold plated. They should be fire firing like platinum tipped rounds or whatever with all the money they're getting. Well, actually not, because in in real terms, the U.S. military budget is probably, uh, and I know I will get a lot of hate for this probably, but. The more I've dug into this, the more it seems clear that in terms of what the actual U.S. military commitments are, and in terms of like the fixed capital that they've acquired all over the years, uh, fixed capital which has an increasing maintenance cost over time, 
like the 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 actual budget is not really big enough to even support the platforms that the US has. And this is not a great secret either. Like this you can just go to um, the congressional or oh, sorry the the government accountability office for example and you can download a report uh, sort of laying out every type of aircraft that the US military uses uh, how many of them actually have spare parts how many of them have other sustainment issues such as like you know the the manufacturing line is 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 gone. Um, all of the parts are obsolete. Stuff like that. And if you read those reports, the situation is actually quite dire. Um, and 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 so, in general, like a lot of the platforms that the U.S. uses, like a lot of ships and so on, are really old. They don't have enough people to really fully operate them safely. They have a huge lack of like maintenance personnel, trained ma- maintenance personnel, uh, at a point where after the, the accidents of the Fitzgerald and the McCain, for example, which belong to the 7th Fleet, which is uh, the fleet formation that would actually be first in line against in a war against China, like it people in command positions within the Seventh Fleet basically admitted to journalists that whenever they send in a ship for maintenance, they basically have a a policy, an informal policy at least, of not actually checking for problems that they can't afford to fix. (laughs) And how how much, uh, I mean, in recent years... Um, there's been a lot of talk about problems with um, procurement within the American military system. Uh, there've been a series of a series of procurement programs uh, that haven't gone well, that have been incredibly expensive, and have, haven't even at the end of all of this expense uh, delivered weapons platforms that are uh, exceptional, or in some cases even ready to use. Uh, Famously for the U.S. Navy, uh, which is uh, something we were discussing just now, uh, there was the Zumwalt-class destroyer, which was a kind of a new stealth ship with new power systems and uh, was designed to be the future of the U.S. surface fleet. The, the, there was the, also the littoral-class ship, the LCS, which um, was intended for some of the, the the kind of littoral missions that they would need for counterinsurgency in smaller wars, and neither of those ships worked out. There was also famously the F-35, which, as originally envisaged, was meant to be a kind of an off-the-shelf, cheaper version of the F-22 that could be um, be used across the whole range of uh, U.S. service arms, the, the Navy, the Marines, and the uh, U.S. Army. Um, and that turns out to be, a, you know, far more expensive than the F twenty two even was, and something of a hangar queen. It's constantly in for maintenance. That it's constantly being grounded for issues, um, and again, phenomenally expensive. I mean, how much of the 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 US undercapitalization and their struggle to keep up with the maintenance maintenance schedule is due to kind of splurging. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, even on this kind of you know future weapons platform that tends to be you know extremely high maintenance and not p- 
particularly usable? Um, it's it's an interesting question, and I think that the the dynamic here is not necessarily one of splurging. Uh, and I think the Sumvault and the the LCS, which is actually two classes, by the way, the Freedom and the Liberty class, um, which isn't optimal in itself. But like, I think those ships illustrate really the massive problem inherent in in like the sort of bureaucratic labyrinth that is first like U.S. military procurement, but also just like the the pretty dismal reality of of sort of U.S. economic industrial power since the end of the Cold War, because both the LCS and the Sumwalt uh, were at least in in large part defeated by essentially like the design requirements being fairly unrealistic. But the reason those design requirements were quite unrealistic, especially for for the Sumwalt, but also in terms of like the LCS, um, was because like the Navy in this time of, you know, sandbox warfare was becoming quote unquote irrelevant. Like, we didn't really need a Navy anymore. And the problem with the U.S. saying we don't really need a Navy anymore is that, like, that in itself, in a time of cutbacks, means that, you know, the Navy is getting raided for for budget in order to furnish other services. So the Navy was trying, uh, in some part at least, to basically, quote-unquote, stay relevant. And so the Sumwalt was, like, the thinking behind that cursed ship is, 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 is hard to sort of parse. But a large part of it was basically that the Sumwalt was going to be this piece of, like, floating, hyper-accurate artillery um, that could, you know, hit a target in land, like, with, with pinpoint precision and so on, uh, using some sort of special... Uh, um, cannon with extremely expensive ammunition that was so expensive that like they cancelled the program once they saw the price tag. But like the U.S. Navy being essentially sort of neglected on a sort of short with short-termist thinking here because it's only going to be the sandbox. It's only going to be Iraq and then Iran forever, and then trying as best as it can to go, okay, well, it's going to be Iraq and Iran forever, so here's what we're going to do to secure some sort of funding. And then Americans waking up and saying, oh, wait, China is still a thing, Russia is still a thing. Uh, Gosh golly, I guess we need a navy now. Like, that sort of illustrates that there's no long-term thinking anymore. So a lot of this, a lot of these procurement nightmares are actually coming not from, you know, these defense companies necessarily being, you know, evil, cackling villains. And more of it is coming from sort of structural bureaucratic incentives that by themselves are quite dysfunctional in the U.S. Like, if, if Americans today could go back in time, they would just say, okay, well, you know, we're gonna keep up the capacity in the Navy to actually wage, you know, pick a fight with a great power competitor because even though like right now in 2005 it's not particularly relevant 
you know, 2023, it's only 18 years away. And 18 years away, that's not a very long time in, in the life cycle of states. But they didn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the fact that some of this is due to, I mean, effectively fads. Um, but, I mean, another angle on it is really, which I think ties into the fad dynamic, is um, is the congressional, uh, the Congress, the U.S. Congress having to kind of ha- have a lot of say in how these budgets are done. Um, I'll just kind of give my understanding of that and then maybe a concrete example and then hand it back to you for your kind of thoughts on that. I mean, my understanding of it is that basically military spending in the United States is um, is their federal jobs program in a way. Uh, not just that, but it's their regional development program. It's kind of both baked into one. So if you often hear of a lot of these kind of military bases or even manufacturers being in poorer states, it's not, it's not a coincidence. It's almost like a development strategy. And the reason for that, obviously, is the U.S. is much more capitalistic, you know, red and tooth and claw, libertarian, call it what you want, than Europe. And so the only way that they really were able to, to justify the regional, uh, feder- the federal expenditures on regions that they needed for the development of those states was through military spending. Um, that's my sense of it. Um, I, 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 think, I think probably when that started, maybe in the Eisenhower period, when he started warning about military industrial complex, it probably was a net, a net positive in economic terms. But I definitely get the sense that maybe since Iraq, maybe prior to that, might even be at the end of the Cold War, I'm not sure, that the process became highly corrupted, frankly. And lobbying became um, so uh, so invasive of this process as to render it questionable at best. Now, the military isn't the only only thing poisoned by lobbying in D.C., but given that it's one of the largest expenditures, and it's certainly one of the largest expenditures that can easily be transferred, you know, a, a, a so-called entitlement program can't easily be transferred, although there's even people nipping at the heels of them, hoping to privatize Social Security to make money, so on in the finance industry. So just to give a concrete example of that, it's one we brought up when we were talking before the show. It's the um, it's the R- RQ4 Global Hawk system, um, which was an air reconnaissance system, and it was cancelled. Um, well, it was, a, it was announced that the Air Force is planning to retire it um, in 2022, at the beginning of 2022, after only after less than 10 years. Um, now, the interesting thing is, if you go back 10 years to when the fight was taking place, you can find an article in The Atlantic in 2013 uh, that's entitled The Dren That Wouldn't Die, How a Defense Contractor Bested the Pentagon. And I think I'll just read a a very short uh, passage from this just to give a sense of of what the... uh, what the lobbying swamp looks like. It says a team of Northrop lobbyists, Northrop being the the uh, company that was building the uh, the drone system, I think it's a drone system, a uh, team of Northrop lobbyists packed with former congressional staff and bolstered by hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions, persuaded Congress to demand the drone's continued production and operation. In doing so, the contractor, which had revenue of $25.2 billion in 2012, more than 90% from the more than ninety percent of which was from the federal treasury, defied not only the leadership of the Air Force but also the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey. He he told the House Armed Services Committee in February 2012 that the Global Hawk has fundamentally priced itself out of our ability to afford it. So I think that kind of gives an overview of the toxicity of all that. Malcolm, maybe if you could say something 
on that kind of um, the congressional side of this? Yes, I, I think that people don't really realize that how sort of what a bureaucratic Kafkaesque nightmare that like actually sort of getting dollars to get to the right place inside of the military is. So a lot of spending is sort of constrained by things such as continuing resolutions, like direct sort of appropriations, which means that in the case of the Global Hawk, essentially you had the Air Force saying like this, this is a piece of junk. The Global Hawk, by the way, had like a flyaway cost of $130 million or something in, in 2013, I think, which is more than, you know, a, a new Super Hornet, uh, which is a, a fighter bomber, essentially, um, or fighter attack aircraft that you can launch off a carrier around Taiwan, for example. Um so the Air Force said, we don't really want the Global Hawk. Like, it doesn't do anything. It's very easy to shoot down. It costs more than sin. Uh, but they were structurally unable to say, we're not paying for this. Like, we we, we only have a limited budget. We need all of this capacity. Uh, we're going to spend money on that. Because, like, you have very little leeway, even as a flag officer, even as someone basically in charge of procurement, to actually go against Congress. And Congress has a very pernicious role to play here in, in the sense that, as you point out, Philip, like a lot of this stuff is a jobs program. Um, but the problem here is just that even making this critique, it's very easy to fall into the idea that, okay, well, the big five, the primes, so Boeing, Northrop Grumman, uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon and General Dynamics, like these, these are the bad guys in the story. Uh, but but there in, in there's at least one sense in which they're really not. Like there's one sense in which Northrop Grumman is actually a victim, in the sense that um, Northrop and Grumman Aircraft never really wanted to merge. Like they would have been fine if America still had you know fifty prime like defense contractors which the u.s had during the cold war um but after the end of the cold war there was this like famous uh, lost supper inside the pentagon where where u.s officials basically told the entire defense industry base like representatives from the big companies that like a lot of you are just gonna die and we're gonna let you die so you better merge into like, you know, we can maybe have one company producing missiles and, you know, two companies producing aircraft, but we can't have 10 or 15. And so a lot of this stuff, like a lot of this very pernicious sort of jobs program stuff that doesn't necessarily contribute to military readiness. Yeah, it is a jobs program, but I mean, any sort of industrial uh, um, nation that wants to wage industrial wars has to set aside a part of the national economy in order to, you know, sustain the defense industrial base. You can't, you can't just wake up one day and say, oh, well, you know, I would like machine guns. You really need to keep those factories and those skills and those workers going over time. 
And this was something that the U.S. decided to skimp out on. Um, the U.S. in in 1985 conceivably had a defense industrial base that could be tooled up to fight against China today. But this was deemed to be far too expensive, so it was all sort of cannibalized, sold for scrap. And now you have five like big contractors, five prime contractors, as the nomenclature is. And underneath them, you have this incredibly rickety and poorly funded sort of swamp of subcontractors where it's like, you know, aircraft have these things called flares. So if you have a heat seeker missile, you drop a flare, which is just a really hot burning object that the heat seeker missile can then confuse for an aircraft engine. Well, those flares are manufactured by one company that is not uh, actually <laughs> profitable. And there was this huge... Um, huge issue with that company which is the only company that actually produces flares for the american military going out of business because it couldn't make money and this is this is the reality like there's not enough money to go around it's not all going to you know mansions or pyramids or whatever in in arlington virginia like there is a real lack of funding especially long-term stable funding and the primes like the big five, they do pretty okay, even though they're probably like they would probably need much more subsidies in order to like compete with Chinese com- uh, companies. Um, but like underneath them, like the actual ecosystem producing all the spare parts and so on, like it, it's it's basically starving to death. It, it's it's not getting enough um, enough in West investment. Uh, inflation has really, really throw, thrown a spanner into the works. Like these companies basically can't make money. And and there's no more money to be had. There's no more money coming from Congress. Malcolm, I know you still officially refer to yourself as a Marxist, which probably explains why you and I have a fairly similar conception of the global economy, because I trained as a uh, post-Keynesian economist, which I presume no one will know what it is. But it's a kind of a it's 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 a Keynesian economist that is sometimes inspired by Marxism, but also Marxists tend to, without putting too fine a point on it, steal some of their macroeconomics from post-Keynesians. Uh, long-standing debate, but I think uh, certainly what um, the Marxists and the post-Keynesians share in common is that they see the world economy, uh, or at least the developed markets economies or Western economies or whatever you want to call them, as having entered a crisis probably in the 1970s, and that crisis never really resolved itself, uh, was temporarily papered over by financialization and debt, and uh, started to unwind in 2008-2009, and... I think the people coming from that school, at least the more forward-thinking people, are growing extremely concerned about the direction of travel with the economy right now. So maybe that's not quite a question, but I suppose it's kind of an opening for you to maybe give your kind of overall view of where the world economy is, where it came from, where it might be going. Yeah, I think that's 
that's a pretty good um, a pretty good opener, and and it ties naturally into what we were just talking about. Um, so so just to sort of give the military side of things here. Um, at the at the start of the Vietnam War, like the U.S. Navy had something like nine hundred ships, between nine hundred and a thousand, unless this graph deceives me. By the close of the Cold War, the U.S. Navy had around six hundred ships. Today, it's down to around two hundred and ninety ships. The story that's been told over this period is basically that, like, the U.S. hit a, a, a nadir around Vietnam. Like it was weak, it was internally fractured, like it was economically you had inflation, blah, blah, blah. But then it rose from the ashes like a phoenix and sort of started dominating the world. But if you look at the graphs, if you look at the actual charts, like charting out, you know, like hard and, hard and exact numbers here in, in, term of, in terms of military platforms and so on, that story doesn't really have any any sort of empirical evidence going for it. it it's it's just it's just a sort of narrative, and and the same can be said for you know the defense the industrial base of the United States, particularly the defense industrial base. It, like the Americans have basically been eating seed corn for the last 40, 50 years, um, like things you you've maintained this idea of prosperity by essentially making the system more effective and cutting out all the fat but it turns out that having you know 30 or 40 defense companies that's not fat that's something you need that's actually muscle that you don't use that often but that you need in a great power conflict um but you you didn't really need it in 2005, so you basically sold it for scrap. Um, and, and in terms of the general economy, I think that this is, this is kind of the big problem in the West in general. Um, there's this debate in Sweden about nuclear power right now, and the right is basically trying to tar and feather the social democrats because the social democrats shut down a couple of um, nuclear reactors uh, during the late aughts, or sorry, the, the late 2010s. Uh, the problem is that like the design specs for these reactors were never really meant to go into the 2020s. They were meant to be shut down, actually, before they were shut down in reality. But everyone wants to talk about like, oh, the the great crime of shutting down these reactors that were getting way past their, their pull date. Nobody really wants to talk about the fact that we haven't built new reactors for like 45, 50 years. Like th- this glaring lack of investment is just like it's allowed to pass without any comment and people are fighting over well i think we could have extended the service life of this reactor built 50 years ago by another five years yeah maybe maybe not but the fact that we no longer sort of build or plan for or budget for a sort of industrial economy stuff like you know sewage lines uh like the power grid uh, you know the, the the reactors to actually generate the power for the power grid. Like the fact that we're not really investing in that sort of stuff 
with a plan past 2040 or something. That's that's just become a very common story in the West, and and we try to ignore it as best we can. But it's but it's a real issue. Can I ask, as as somebody not as well versed in economics as Philip, is this not is this not just another cycle where the solution for the last big problem and crack up works for a while, but then itself starts cracking up? So. Just an example of that, after the Second World War, Western economies did not want to repeat the mistakes that led to mass unemployment during the Great Depression and mass um, you know, loss of economic production. So they instituted a range of policies that, or, or certainly in, the, in Europe, but I think to a certain degree in the US as well, to attempt to guarantee full employment. But then over time, because workers always had options, they were able to consistently bargain up on wages. Uh, Eventually, productivity couldn't keep up with those increases in wages. So inflation eventually happened, and that led to the stagflation of the 1970s and the general economic malaise. So here comes Reagan and Thatcher and the, and the ideas of people like Milton Friedman. And what we'll do is we will cut away a lot of social programs. We'll lower the top marginal rate of tax. We'll lower, um, we, you know, we'll lower corporation tax. We'll free corporations from the old obligations that they used to have to their communities. We'll let loose the power of the market. And by doing that, We'll create a more efficient and dynamic economy. and But then over time, that process is eaten away at old industrial capacity. It's eaten away at the social fabric. And now again, we're having a crack up like we did in the 1970s, like we did in the 1930s. And we're just looking for another, um, another economic model that can solve some of the problems that we've got now. I mean, from listening to you, you it, it sounds to me at least that you view this period is is kind of unique. It, it's not a case of this standard um, rise and fall and replacement of an economic model. It, it, it seems like you view it as more fundamental than that. I, I would say that, like, I agree with, like, Philip's basic point that, like, the actual decline began in the 1970s. That was outside of World War II, which was a very special case. But, like, the... the if you think about the Vietnam War, America lost 10,000 airframes, mostly helicopters, but a lot of planes as well, uh, fighting against North Vietnamese. This was not a fair fight by any measure. Like North Vietnam, sure, they got some help from the Soviet Union, from China. Some of the equipment they got was actually quite good, but a lot of it was like a generation behind. Still, America lost 10,000 airframes fighting a much inferior opponent. Um, and that's, that's, that's not like a knock on the Americans. These kind of um, sort of mass casualty or like mass equipment destruction figures, like this is normal for industrial warfare. Um, but this was the last time that the U.S. could actually go into a conflict and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to lose 10,000 tanks or 10,000 airplanes, but we can just make more. Um, 
like since then that has never really been the case and so i don't necessarily see the the um the post war era as one of like ups and downs coming constantly i do think that the, the the last up that we actually truly had in terms of you know quote unquote war fighting was some somewhere during like the the 1970s and since then it's just been downs since then in order to sort of um how do i say this like in order to actually have a a robust diet the americans have been eating their own seed corn and at some point you can do that for a long time if you have a lot of seed corn stored up but at some point you run out of seed corn and at that point all that you're getting in terms of calories comes from stuff that you plant and then harvest and if everyone's forgotten how to plant and to har- harvest you have a real sort of structural problem on your hands um Right now, there's a growing sort of realization. I was watching a congressional hearing on the the, the parlous state of the defense industrial base. Um, and, you know, you have these politicians, like really old, you know, octogenarians, whatever, saying that, okay, maybe it was a mistake to tell everyone to go to college and to disparage, you know, working with your hands. Because right now, we kind of need a couple of more ammunition plants. And it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a bit too late to realize that now. It's, it's fairly ingrained in the culture. And it's not something you turn around in, you know, nine months or whatever, because you need to make more uh, uh, anti-ship missiles. And a lot of this, this discussion in the West right now are treating these like systemic problems that have been 50 years in the making, literally 50 years in the making, as something that, oh, well, you know, it just came with COVID. And we just need to appoint some sort of panel to, you know, propose new solutions, subsidies, stimulus bills, whatever. And we'll, we'll be back to the 1970s economy in, you know, 18 months. I think this this discourse is going to continue for maybe maybe two years or something, at which point people are going to start to realize that, well, I mean, it took, it took 50 years to wreck the U.S. industrial base and the industrial base of, you know, all of our Western countries. It's going to take about as long to rebuild it, probably. Definitely not something you can do if you plan on, you know defeating the Chinese in the, the South China Sea in 24 months. Like that, these are not the time scales you're looking for. Yeah, certainly one of our uh, podcast favorites, uh, Peter Zahan, is talking about at the moment the, you know, the greatest reindustrialization in history going on and giving the impression that it's going to happen overnight in America. Which where, seems... where is the reindustrialization going on? Like... It, there's a lot of talk, but like so much of the talk in the West today is just completely fake. It's, it's, actually, it's actually quite unnerving, I have to say. Like if you think about the, the, the vaunted German leopard tanks, uh, we haven't been able to make new leopard tanks for decades. We, like, you know, the West. 
when but but if you go into wikipedia it says like new so and so many new models are being produced like what's actually going on is that we sold all of the tooling and the factories and so on to actually make the hulls and, and the guns of the leopard tanks or at least the hulls but when we make a new leopard tank these days we take one that you know previous generations have made we put it in a depot or a, or you know some workshop we rip out the electronics and we put in new electronics that's our act of producing new leopard tanks like the the, the factory to actually do what is in reality producing a new leopard tank which is you know taking steel and making you know armor plating and bolting the armor plating to the chassis and so on. Like, we don't have that anymore. It was too expensive, so, so we sold it. And, and, and yet we maintain this illusion of, you know, we can produce. And it's like that with so much. Like, so much of this stuff is just talk. Um, and, and in terms of, you've covered this point before. Yeah, like in 2022, we saw the greatest rearmament in Europe's history. Like Germany is coming back to what it was during World War II. And then you look at the German budget uh, a, a year later, and it's doubtful whether the budget in reality is even going to keep pace with inflation. So... What's going to be the result of this, uh, Malcolm? I mean, the you know we see the kind of um, foreign policy that Western leaders would like to run. We see a lot of that has to do with a kind of a verbal, a verbalized morality, um, an idea of the kind of civilizing the jungle outside the Western world. Um, given the um, given the political economy of the Western world at the moment, uh, certainly at the elite level, what is going to be the result, in your view, of the hollowing out of our military, industrial, and plain industrial complex and the fact that it's going to take half a century to rebuild? I think that the one of the most interesting and sort of under- theorized and under-discussed results is probably going to be, if I can say this as quote-unquote a Marxist, probably going to be a pretty severe form of class warfare in inside our societies. And I don't mean that in some sort of, like, I, I don't mean to make a point that's like especially droll here. What I mean by class warfare is actually that if you look at politics today and the sort of people that dominate politics, like on the left, it used to be that the people who, who dominated sort of social democrat parties usually worked their way up the, the unions. And if you want to work your way up the unions, sure, you can be like a, a corrupt union boss or whatever at the end, but you usually started out on the factory floor. Uh, unions don't necessarily recruit people for top leadership positions from the university. Uh, even though they probably do in 2023, actually. Um, but but so on the right, left, you had this sort of way that people worked their way up from the productive economy into positions of leadership. 
and on the right you had a lot of business leaders which is also you know just another facet of the productive economy but over time what we've seen is that both on on the right business leaders have given way for you know like the professional managerial classes the pmcs uh, people with this sort of abstract way of relating to the world people who have credentials people who go to you know universities diploma mills and it's the same on the left like these people dominate our pol- politics and they dominate the media and so on and their conception of the the world is basically wasn't displayed during the covid crisis it's like if we shut down all the factories that produce cars but just print you know give everyone a million dollars to buy a car like we'll be so rich and we won't have to produce cars anymore like it's 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 a win 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 uh people will have be able to buy cars but you know factories are very polluting and climate change and so on so we'll just have them buy the cars without any factory making the cars i think that like what we're going to see as this sort of this sort of class crashes and burns on the on the rocks of you know a completely failed foreign and domestic economic policy uh, is going to be like a lot of infighting in our societies over like what kind of people get the next bite of the apple but in terms of you know foreign policy I think we're going to keep stumbling from disaster to disaster. Like people were so so cocksure regarding the war in Ukraine. Like it, it was really a sight to see people saying like oh well you know the the Russian economy like this is just a gas station. Uh like these people are just going to collapse in 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 two weeks when we use our economic sanctions on them. Like even the Russians were surprised at how feeble our economic warfare has turned out to be. And I'm sure they didn't really predict that Europe would basically torpedo its own economy. Like if if you think people in the Kremlin were sitting there going, "Oh well, like we're using this 12D chess when we invade like launched a special military operation because we'll go the Europeans into destroying their own economies and deindustrializing no i i think every sort of political commentator and and you know power broker inside the russian elite is just looking at europe and going like what the hell are these people doing like seriously um and that's that's probably going to continue like because again we are sort of stuck in this um like this bonfire of illusions right now we we can't really give up the idea that again like the americans have created this narrative that it's only gotten richer and stronger and more powerful since the, since the 1970s the 1970s was a low point of american power this was when americans were at their weakest and then you look at like how many ships did america have okay it had like 850 ships how many ships do they have today 290 like have they really become more powerful was the 70s really the absolute low point of american power probably not but the lie has to go on because we can't really face the fact of basically decline here 
and our inability to face the, the, the reality of decline is only making the decline go much faster, unfortunately. It's something we don't talk about a lot on the show, and since you're here and you've mentioned it, I think we, we should, is the nature of the contemporary elite um, in the West, as you call them, the professional managerial class. Um, that's certainly, the way you've described it is certainly my impression too. I, I mean, I'd add to that that um, that it comes with a very specific mindset. It's... it's um, it's technocratic, but it's not scientific. That's how I'd put it. That the the people who used to run things, as you say, um, you know, often tied to manufacturing, they used to be engineers. I mean, to call a spade a spade, they used to be engineers or engineering adjacent. And uh, engineers tend to um, tend to be more commonsensical about things. They tend to be more hands on about things. The professional managerial class are very much steeped in theories, various theories, increasingly probably economics, neoclassical economics, um, believing in all sorts of voodoo about supply and demand and what it can achieve and and, and not recognizing what it can't. Um, they are a strange. They are a sort of a strange bunch. I mean, to give some sense of it, probably, probably the tip of the spear in terms of the. Con- contemporary professional managerial class in terms of them actually trying to get something done, like really get something done is probably the private equity industry. It's, 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 it's the most, it's the most, um, it's the industry that employs these people that actually tries to get them to go out and do things rather than shuffle paper. Now I'm not saying we don't have manufacturing. Of course we have manufacturing. There's plenty of manufacturing left. I mean, not relative to the size of the economy, not sufficient, et cetera, everything you've said. It does exist, but it's it's low um it's not well compensated relative to finance or relative to tech. It's um it's 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 not high social status. If you say I'm a I'm a you know top tier engineer at a pharmaceutical production company, it's not high social status. It's well compensated, but not relative to the other industries. Um, and so, private equity is probably the tip of the spear. Now, it's a, it, it's a funny they they get the almost perfect mix in private equity. You have a mix of kind of economists, MBAs, uh, lawyers, a lot of lawyers. Lawyers run a lot of things these days. It seems to me, and um, and what comes out of that um, of that sausage, in a sense, is is these attempts of private equity to intervene in the world. Now, I actually personally think private equity is is a more interesting version of finance than most of the others uh, today, and I think it could be repurposed for interesting uh, ideas. I have some sense that it could be repurposed for industrial policy, but as it currently stands, it seems to me to be a kind of a um, a manner of organizing things. Uh, private equity people are very good at going in, looking for a trend somewhere, a market trend, uh, locking onto it, and then figuring out how best to kind of organize and structure companies around it. And the companies are usually kind of small entrepreneurs, you know, orphan programmers and stuff these days who set up a small company designed to do uh, immediate tasks. And then the private equity guys kind of kind of come in and they marshal them, like an army in a sense, turning these kind of entrepreneurial ventures into a more kind of cohesive business model. But ultimately, that's all it is. It's just organization. There's no... There's no real engineering behind it. Nothing, uh, nothing rolls off the factory floor afterwards. 
I just wonder what, so that's kind of my impression of it. I use private equity just as the kind of most, the one that I'd be most complimentary towards in terms of the attempts by the professional managerial class to actually do something. And they do do something more than, you know, somebody managing asset, you know, portfolios for a pension fund or something. Sorry, guilty, I used to do it. Um, they do do something more than that. Um, but I mean, what, so what type of what type of mindset do you think that breeds in the elite, and and why does it why does it lead to the to the trends that you're talking about of of ignoring decline, speeding it up, being way too optimistic and hubristic about what can be achieved, and then not learning lessons when it isn't achieved? I mean, what's the connection there? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. Like a couple of years ago, I was asked whether I wanted to um, contribute to to a sort of project that Brookings Institute was doing, and they were like, you know, we're Brookings, we're really sort of you know famous and so on. You know, do know of us, right? And it's like, yeah, unfortunately, I have this mental illness which makes me watch all of these panels on grand strategy in Asia and so on from from the DC swamp. So I do know what Brookings Institute is. But like the person I was in contact with basically wanted to do some piece on why the Sweden Democrats had been effective in creating a narrative uh, regarding, you know, immigration in Sweden leading to some problems. And I just said, well, like this is kind of this is kind of your problem here. Like you, you sort of fell flat at the at the starting line here, because the Sweden Democrats did not succeed because, like, they found a bunch of Swedish brains that were basically, you know, on the factory setting, and then they programmed them to think, you know, immigration equals bad. Like, there wasn't a narrative going on. There was a physical, material reality. And a lot of people experienced the physical material reality of sort of immigration during the crisis of 2015. And they thought it had a fair amount of problems. But this thinking in terms of narrative, I, I, I think that private equity is only one part of this. And, and private equity is probably the smartest part. But my experience with politics here is not that like a lot of people come from the private equity side. Like a lot of people come from essentially journalism and marketing. Like they, they either go from like a journalist job into like a political job or they hope to go the other way. But that seems to me like probably the most common way for young people to get into quote unquote politics, it's very very common here in Sweden. Yeah, just just to be clear, I was saying the private equity guys because I think they are probably the top tier yes, yes. of the managerial class. Everything below that is, uh, yeah, it gets it gets worse all the way down. Yes, yes, and so so like I think that in terms of like understanding how these people think, um, the like the the sort of median level here like quite literally consists of people who have absolutely no connection at all to anything like physical material. They don't even have 
you can't even say that, okay, well, they don't really produce much in the end, but they go into like these actually existing companies or like startups or whatever and, and, and try to help them suss out trends. Like so much of our politics these days is about like managing narratives. And this becomes a li- like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost that like what matters is that we need to manage the narratives because um, if we don't manage the narratives, we won't win. And if we won't win, we can't manage the narratives. Um, and this, this is really, I think, I think like a lot of it is just down to sort of what social, like, again, to speak as a Marxist, like the, 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 the ideology of a society is the ideology of its ruling class. Like I, I apologize for sort of tainting the multipolarity podcast with these, these old bromides, but in this particular case, I do think it has some relevance, um, and I think that COVID in particular was a nasty crash with reality here. Um, but, but in general, like we really had this completely insane idea in the nineties as part of this attempt to hide the fact that we were eating our own seed corn or basically taking everyone and, and turning them into a quote unquote knowledge worker. Um, yeah, sure, Britain won't have much in the way of industry anymore, but it's fine because everyone can go to university, right? And work with what exactly? That wasn't particularly clear, but like we, we would sell each other apartments and, you know, make marketing campaigns and like people in the rest of the world would, would produce stuff for us. And for a short while that seemed to work or or actually it did work as long as you ignored the people who really lost out. And, you know, like, you know, in Britain, this is most famously like the north of the country. Um, as long as you ignored the segment of the population, which was a significant segment, but not like the majority or, or anything, which really, really lost out on this uh, shift in the economy, like everyone else basically had a banquet from all of the capital that was freed up from, you know, selling off our, our productive infrastructure. And it's, 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 it's just natural for these people to then sort of um, percolate into all of these leadership positions. And they've never really known anything else. Uh, I think it was a point you made, Philip, that like if you think about like the our generation and people five to ten years older maximum than us like a lot of these people are just like they are teachers pets like they are the people who came of age during like the period when tony blair was remaking the world and every social democrat in sweden wanted to meet tony blair because he had the keys to the future like these people grew up in that, and they've never known another system. Um, so I think, like we genuinely, it's not even that we have a problem of ideology, which we do. It's it's on a more basic level. I think we have a problem of ignorance. Like these people are just like they don't really know anything. 
Um, if you get into Harvard, for example, it's basically impossible to fail. I think 99% of the people who get into Harvard graduate. It, it's a completely ridiculous number. Um, like That's that. because the teachers are so good, no? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and you know what? Like, if you're George W. Bush, what you can do is you can just hire someone else to, you know, show up at tests and do your tests for you. The teachers are just that good, Philip. Uh, you don't you don't even have to attend classes in order to pass them. You you just get this stuff from osmosis, essentially. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly, yes. And and the thing is here that like you the the, the real reason that like nobody fails is that these things are not set up to fail. Like they're an elite selection mechanism without any of the any of the hazing or any of the actual sort of rigorous curriculum to to train a leadership class. And, you know, societies, there are societies throughout history that, that do that sort of thing. They don't really last that long uh, before they either uh, change what they're doing or they get gobbled up by some outside competitor. And we can either change what we're doing or we can, you know, spin the wheel of fortune a couple of times and see what comes up, I guess. So, look, we have a, a an elite that is ignorant of any other uh, socioeconomic geostrategic system uh, than the failed one that we have now. We have a leadership which is... Um, drawn not from the engineering class or the trades union class or the finance class, but from the journalism and PR class. Um, We have uh, cannibalized our uh, industrial resources over the last 30 years and are anyway uh, educating young people to be entirely ignorant of the skills that they've got or or that they would need uh, to rebuild industry. Um, before our listeners start, you know, buying canned food and gold and running for the hills, is there any hope, Malcolm? <laughs> I mean, or is it all just doom and uh, is the West going to decline like the uh, Roman Empire did before it? I mean, the, the thing that I often get, like, thrown in my face is that I'm some sort of, like, I'm preaching apocalypse or doom or whatever, and... I always find, like, this is a very psychological, like, a very understandable human psychological mechanism. Like, it's a subset of bargaining, almost, in the sense that, like, if we look at actual collapses and actual sort of doom and gloom that's actually played out in the world, we can take the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, the problem for people living in the Soviet Union when it collapsed was not that history ended, but that history kept going on. Like, yeah, okay, you still have to, you know, work, take care of your family, socialize with your friends and so on, even in an, in an economy where uh, you are being paid as a teacher in bottle of, bottles of vodka because uh, intermittently... Like the monetary system is is on the fritz to the point where like you're 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 back to barter. Like that could happen to us too. But but 
that's not a vacation, right? Like that's that's just okay. Now we have more problems we need to fix, and those problems over a long enough time scale they're fixable. Maybe not to what we had in the seventies, uh, but but the world just isn't going to end. Like no matter how you slice it, even if we have nuclear war, like you know. In the worst case scenario, 95% of the population is going to starve to death, which is, you know, bad. But it's not actually as bad as the um, population decline in North America as a result of the Colombian exchange. You know, like all of these European diseases coming and completely decimating the population. But like the North Americans, like the two in a hundred or whatever that were still left after like the diseases had done their work. I mean, they had to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and just keep going, and they did. So I'm not necessarily particularly, like, my my attitude about the future is not one of particular gloom, because even if really bad things happen, like, humans will keep on trucking. We really have no other choice. Uh, but once the bad things happen, or if they happen, like, this really... That's really when you can't sit around and go, oh, will she, won't she? Like, you really do have to sit down and actually solve the problems. Will we do it before the problems sort of metastasize? I don't think there's particularly auspicious signs for that right now, if I'm being honest. I don't think that, like... If you think about this conflict in in Ukraine, for example, I think we we're still at the phase when everything like we we treat setbacks with a mix of denial and cognitive dissonance right now. And so, how long will that period last? Because as long as it lasts, our problems with will get worse. I think you're absolutely right. Emphasizes we're we're all known as doomers here. Uh, the podcast is accused of being doomerish. Um, Am I a doomer? I don't know. I don't really know what that means. I, I I am a lot more pessimistic about the world than I was four years ago because changes have taken place. If you want to call that doomerish, fine. Okay. But I think the point is exactly what you say, that that it, nothing's going to like fall apart immediately. <laughs> like that's not going to happen. And in fact, even the the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think, would be will be a far more recognizable event than any decline that we're seeing now. We'll see if the trends go badly. My sense is that everything just declines. It just declines. And we've seen these declines multiple times in in history before. If you want a fairly recent example, go and look at the decline of British living standards in the 1920s. It was absolutely profound. And as you say, people get on with it. I, I, I think I think the and I think the reaction to it is going to be a lot of shoulder shrugging because I mean, you and I have both written on the on the major decline of uh, European food consumption in the last year, nearly 20% in at least France, Germany, and Italy that I've seen data for. 20% decline in food consumption. We've discussed it on the podcast before. You would now say about it recently. And the response to that, because you saw it on Twitter as well as I did, was at first, you're lying. A bunch of people told me I was lying. I made up the statistics. And then when they realized I didn't make up the statistics, they said, Oh well, maybe the maybe people aren't going to restaurants and blah blah. They tried to come up with some statistical. Anyway, when it came to the end of the road and they realized no food consumption had fallen by twenty percent, even if some of it was substituting little for you know 
nicer food or whatever, and that doesn't matter. Declining quality of food matter counts as declining food consumption, economists speaking. But look, the, the eventual kind of point that they came to was, oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I think that's got that 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 is going to be and now and now in in four months time uh, if the food declines down by 30 percent from its peak people will go oh food food's declining again i don't know is that how you feel about it in some sense yes but in some sense no like i think that i think that particularly the united states actually and you know if we had another hour we could get into that but like the united states is a country which was designed to basically crack up break up fail uh it has like in engineering speak all these sort of like innate points of fracture something like that like you you basically america wasn't supposed to be an empire with you know 800 army bases or whatever military bases all across the world and so all of the safeguards against that like uh, uh, very powerful states and so on um all of them still exist and so i do think that we're not necessarily in for a very smooth transition because if you think about the ukraine war the ukraine war is very dramatic it's it's not just you know a slow sort of going gently into the good night it's you know hundreds of thousands of people have died but what came before the ukraine war was a slow imperceptible sort of weakening of the west this is generally going to be our future for the next 20 years i think like you know you'll see just as you point out, Philip, like people go, oh, oh, food consumption's dropped. And then you'll get like completely psychotic, like strikes or riots or even, you know, collapsing governments um, or how do I put this? Like non-standard transitions of power inside Western states, um, like out of the ordinary transitions of power and people will actually go like oh yeah okay now that's happened i guess i guess we just have to deal with that just in the sense that people just shrug their shoulders at some point at the ukraine war so it will be a combination of sudden dramatic events which people then start shrugging their shoulders to and then you'll have a lot of slow decline uh between those Well, I think on that note, we can finish this um, really fascinating special episode of Multipolarity. Uh, All that's left to do is thank uh, Malcolm Cheyun and ask him uh, where people can find his writing, his work, his thoughts, his comments, if they are interested in learning more. Um, I write sometimes for Unheard. I have a regular column for Compact Magazine, and I write for American Affairs, and me and me and Philip are actually working on a on an essay for for AA. So I, I definitely recommend that one whenever it's public. Top secret, top secret. Yeah, oh. Philip's two timing me behind my back here. Yeah, well, you I'm know, this is, this, this is what they say, you know, communists created subversion, etc., etc.
afresh from a huge victory.